So the subject of this talk tonight is compassion. And I'd like to begin with a poem by a man named Billy Mills. How many of you have heard of Billy Mills? One. He was a, a Olympic uh, medal winner. I don't know if he won the gold medal or the silver medal, I'm not sure which, in the early 60s in Japan. He was uh, a Native American. He is a Native American. I believe he is still alive, um, Billy Mills, and he was the first Native American to be on the American team, and he won a medal. But because of the racism of the times, they'd never published his picture in the newspaper. It may seem hard to believe, but that is, that is the truth. And so his life, from this little snapshot, you can imagine his life was interesting. It had, you know, glory and, and also this kind of uh, invisibility. So he wrote this. And I'd like to share it with you. I asked for fame so others would know me. I was given obscurity that I might know myself. I asked for a person to love that I might never be alone. I was given a life of a hermit that I might learn to accept myself. I wanted power that I might achieve. I was given weakness that I might learn to obey. I wanted health that I might lead a long life. I was given infirmity that I might appreciate each minute. I wanted to live happily that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might live happily. I received nothing I asked for. Yet all my wishes came true. So I feel that he is describing, in some ways, the paradox of our practice here. How he spoke last night about the noble truths and spoke about the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, as being this insistent demand of our of our small self you could say that things be the way we want them to be that is called craving he talked about that and the possibility of letting go of that craving the very real possibility that we are each faced with of releasing of surrendering our demands on reality to be a certain way and allow reality to reveal itself as it is. Now in that process of letting go, of surrender, we are not letting go into some kind of chaotic, nihilistic void or some something negative. We don't know when we let go, but when we do, something of great value actually occurs. When we let go of our demands that things be different, we are allowing other qualities of consciousness to come forward and be known. In Billy Mills' case, 
what he, as he said so beautifully, I, re- I received nothing I asked for, yet all my wishes came true. What did he receive? Self-knowledge, acceptance, receptivity, gratitude, humility, happiness, fulfillment. These came to him, but not in the way that he wanted, not in the way that he had imagined they would happen. So this is one of those paradoxes of our practice, that we are opening ourselves to receiving the greatest possible gifts of, of being human, I think. Really, the, the qualities of consciousness that can come forward to help us in our lives and hold us on this journey of human life come forward, but only when we let go. In the Buddhist tradition, the self-centered demands that we make on reality are described as the worldly winds, the values that the conventional world lives by. They are described as four pairs of ever-changing opposites, pleasure and pain, pride and shame, success and failure, praise and blame. This is what we think life is about. And of course, we try to maximize and have lots of pleasure. We want the success. We want the praise. We want to feel good about ourselves. And we fear and try to avoid the pain, the shame, the failure, and the blame. Hello. In this cycle of pursuing the worldly winds, we go round and round, round and round. You may have seen a description or a portrayed, an image, you may have seen an image portrayed of this samsaric wheel of life. There's one in the manager's office, actually, if you want to take a look, sort of fitting, the manager's office has the samsaric wheel of life. They get all the samsara of the retreat. But it is a depiction of how we go when we are not conscious, when we are not awake. We go around and round in these, uh, you know, compulsive patterns of reactivity. And this is called samsara. The Dharma, these teaching, provides a possibility of moving out of this cycle and into another gravitational field. Instead of being here, we can flip over here and begin to live in another gravitational field. I'd like to read something from Ashvagosha, who was a, a Buddhist scholar, gosh, I don't know the date, but centuries ago, long time ago. I love this because it seems to me as relevant now as it was in his life. He said, the Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person to go into homelessness or to resign from the world. But the Dharma of the Buddha does require every person to free themselves from the illusion of self, to cleanse one's heart, 
to give up one's thirst for pleasure and lead a life of righteousness. And whatever people do, whether they remain in the world as artisans, merchants, or officers of the king, or retire from the world and devote themselves to a life of meditation, let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be diligent and energetic. And if, like the lotus flower which grows out of the muddy water, but remains untouched by the mud, if they engage in life without cherishing envy or hatred, and if they live in the world, not a life of self, but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their minds. This is very much the movement from the gravitational field of the self where everything centers around what I want, what I must have, what, how I want it to be and how I will make it be, that gravitational field to the gravitational field of truth, living a life of wisdom and compassion. These become the values over time that we place our faith in that we come to rely on as being our guides in life. So tonight I want to talk about compassion in particular. Often wisdom and compassion are talked about together because they are seen to be the two wings of a bird. They are likened to the two wings of a bird. And of course a bird only flies if it has two wings. So wisdom and compassion are both seen as the uh, big qualities of heart and mind that get developed as we practice. On the wisdom side, the qualities of mindfulness, of clarity, of wakefulness, of consciousness, all get developed. This, we, you see this this week. On the compassion side, qualities of the heart, of openness, of tenderness, of tolerance, of care, those qualities of heart also need to come into play. If we only develop the wisdom side, our practice might be dry, a bit disconnected, you know, viewing things from a distance. But without, uh, without wisdom, compassion can, can be very sentimental or idealistic or it can get easily entangled in the suffering of others and then become part of the problem. As in what we call in psychological language, we can become codependent. We get enmeshed in the in the suffering itself, and then we end up not helping anyone. So we need both, both the clarity of the wisdom side and the open-heartedness of the compassion side. Both, both of these streams of, of, um, of cultivation are necessary in our practice. I like to think of compassion as bringing our practice below the neck into the world of human relationships, not only human relationships, all relationships, 
not only our exclusive intimate relationships with our family and loved ones, but also our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, what the Native Americans call all our relations, all our relations, which is really every sentient being, whether it is a tiny little ant crawling up your leg in the meditation hall or the the wild turkeys or the, uh, the snakes that you see around here or whether it's the uh, remembering the factory farmed animals that, that live on this planet or whether it's your difficult boss or your children or it's all our relations. The people that we hear about on the news that we never meet those two are somehow part of our human family. And we are asked as best we can in this practice to come into a wise and caring relationship with every sentient being that we encounter in our world. This is the aspiration of our practice. It's a fairly large task, wouldn't you say? But we are given resources. We are given tools for training our hearts and minds in this endeavor because we need to be trained. It's not just, a, uh, it's just not uh, completely natural to want to love uh, difficult people, for example. So we have these practices called the Brahma Viharas and the, the four dormitories out here are named for the four uh, qualities of heart known as the the Brahma Viharas, or the holy dwellings of the mind, the, the, the states of mind that bring a great deal of wholeness and healing to our being and that help the heart to feel strong and, and happy and, and loving and open. They are the qualities of loving kindness, metta. They're the qualities of compassion or karuna. They're the qualities of mudita or sympathetic joy. And they are the qualities of equanimity, or upekka. So we offer study of these qualities. We offer retreats that where you can develop these qualities. I'm not going to be speaking about all of them tonight. I will speak a little bit about metta, the quality of loving kindness and compassion. Um, in each of these practices, we, as you have been introduced a bit, we use phrases of um, aspiration, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I, may I be free from suffering, may I be well, may I be wise, may I be loving. Those kinds of phrases that, that turn our mind in a particular direction. We're not asking somebody permission when we say, may I, but we're turning our mind. We're saying, may my mind turn in this direction. May my mind turn from worry and, and thoughts of revenge to a better direction. May I, may I cultivate thoughts of loving kindness and care. And we do this uh, to various categories of people. So we may start where it's easy and practice, 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 and go through a variety of categories until we end up with the most difficult people in our lives. 
Many people, when they hear about this practice, of course, they want to immediately start with the most difficult person. That's not, that's not advised. It's advised to start where it's easy. And often it is easy to start our loving-kindness practice or our compassion practice with someone that really we love or we feel, we feel uh, trusting of and we feel they truly have our best interests at heart. So with loving-kindness practice, you pick a benefactor. And then after you've trained your mind with the benefactor, you move to a good friend, somebody who is more of a peer, but somebody that you feel you have a loving relationship with. And then you move to what is called the neutral person. You practice sending loving-kindness to someone you don't know at all, to someone who you don't have any strong attraction to, nor do you have any strong uh, you know, ill will towards. It's just somebody who is indeed neutral. And then lastly, you practice with what is called the difficult person, or the, sometimes called the enemy. So you get to see how your mind is in relationship to people that you like and people you don't like. So I'll tell you a few stories. One was... Uh, when I was practicing some years ago at Insight Meditation, I was doing a long period of metta practice. So I was moving through the categories, and I got to the neutral person, and I, my teacher told me, and I would spend about a week or ten days on each category. So it's pretty intensive. But I got to the neutral person, and so I was given the instruction by Sharon Salzberg, who was my teacher at the time, to pick somebody at the retreat that I didn't know, you know, as neutral. So I picked a woman, didn't know, to this day I don't know who who she was or who she is, and um, picked her, started sending her loving kindness from the moment I woke up in the morning to the moment I went to sleep at night, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be well, may you be healthy, may you be free from all suffering, may you be safe, you know, on and on and on. And I could easily say that in three days I was in love. <laughs> I thought this person took on the glow of, of somebody who I, I couldn't imagine caring about more. Not romantic love, but just love. I just, you know, I was, I thought, did she eat enough for breakfast? (laughs) I'd leave little chocolates on her pillow now and then, you know. Did she wear her coat? It's getting cold out. (laughs) You know, just inclining the mind over and over taught me the power of this, really the power of the practice. I mean, it seemed sort of good when I was sending it to people I already loved, but when I was picking somebody who completely neutral, I could see the power of this intention in the mind to generate positive good wishes to someone I didn't know. And then another story that came to my mind was of Thich Nhat Hanh teaching in Berkeley some years ago when the first, when the senior George Bush was president and we first invaded, uh, what did we invade? Kuwait? Kuwait? (laughs) I get them all mixed up. And uh, that was called uh, Desert Storm or something else. Anyway, we had done that and there was a big peace march and 
peace rally in Berkeley right after we had invaded and Thich Nhat Hanh was in town, so he came to the Berkeley Community Theater and gave a talk, and so many of us went and heard him talk about praising people for doing walking for peace, how important it is to bring peace to the world, and saying things like that. And then he said at the end of the, towards the end, he said, but that's not enough. That is not enough. Your peacemaking will not be complete until you go home tonight and write a love letter to George Bush. You've got to be kidding. <laughs> you know, you could feel the wave in the auditorium. I'm like, you've got to be kidding. But he was serious. That is that quality of loving even those you don't agree with, that you feel are, you know, not moving in the right direction. So, um, compassion is this quality of open-hearted, tender love in the face of suffering. Metta is love that is just love. It doesn't, you know, it's just showering love wherever you look. Compassion is particularly that quality of the heart responding to suffering, feeling empathy. In the text, it's called the quivering of the heart in the face of suffering. And it is the response to suffering. The Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only. And he said this over and over. He said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. I don't teach good or bad, right or wrong. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. So... Part of the end of suffering, of course, is this open-hearted response, whether it's to our own suffering or the suffering around us. Learning to love the world, seeing the world with the eyes of compassion, seeing all beings with the eyes of compassion. Longfellow wrote, if we could read the secret history of our enemies We should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. So that is a reflection that all humans are subject to suffering. All humans. Nobody's exempt. No matter how much money you have, no matter what, everyone is subject to the three kinds of suffering that Howie spoke about last night. I won't ask you what they were, because maybe you'll remember, maybe not. But I will tell you, the three kinds of suffering, dukkha dukkha, the suffering of unpleasant uh, experience of the body, unpleasant experiences and emotions of the mind, dukkha dukkha, suffering that is just painful. The second kind, anicca dukkha, the suffering of things not lasting, of nothing being stable, reliable, constant, enduring, nothing. Everything that comes into form will eventually uh, be gone, will eventually decay, die, return to a formless state. And finally, sankara dukkha, 
the dukkha that comes from the fact that conditions are not perfect, they never will be perfect. I like to think of it as the, the suffering of, of getting your house really clean and then in a couple of hours it's already, you know, the dust is coming back and somebody throws up on the carpet and, you know, <laughs> it, it'll never be perfect. It just won't. It's not the way it is here. And we as humans are vulnerable to these kinds of suffering. There's no getting away from it. And of course, in our world, our super shiny technological world, we like to think that um, anything that is broken or cracked or marred in any way, you know, we should throw it out. So I have a little story I'd like to share with you about the Japanese tea ceremony. Uh, In the Japanese tea ceremony, the unadorned bowls and cups are revered for their simplicity and treated with the utmost care. For this reason, the cups are rarely broken. However, if one does break, they are repaired with gold. Rather than hide where the crack lines were, they celebrate the break with a delicate fill of gold thus announcing to the world that the cup was broken and repaired, that it too is vulnerable to change, and that this vulnerability makes it even more valuable. So it is part of this understanding of life is vulnerable. Things crack, they get broken, they they are not perfect, but that doesn't necessarily mean they lose value. Perhaps they're even more precious in their vulnerability. Atan Shah, Jack Cornfield's teacher, gave a teaching once. He said, do you see this glass? He said, to me, this glass is already broken. I have no illusions about it being here forever. This glass is already broken. But while it is here, I can appreciate it. I can enjoy it. I can value it for its presence here. That's a different attitude towards life, towards things, than we generally have in our world. But compassion is this willingness to bear witness to our human vulnerability, that we will all crack or break or get ill, grow old, die. And this is part of what makes us perhaps valuable and precious in the moment. So I spoke the other night about meeting our difficult uh, states of mind with recognition, acceptance, investigation, and non-identification. Tonight I'd like to add one more, one more thing, which is that not only do we need to bring these qualities of mindfulness to our experience, but also we need to bring a great tender-heartedness a great sense of open-heartedness to our very own suffering. 
This is not self-pity. This is not wallowing, but genuine caring for ourselves so that there's a sense of a presence that is that cares, that is willing to be present with, with, your, with you as you are suffering, as you are feeling uh, vulnerable. They can help the heart to feel safe and open. May I be free from sorrow. May I be free from despair. May I be free from judgment. Any of these phrases can help the heart to settle, to feel safe and to open. The heart opens, of course, in many different ways, not only in meditation, maybe from being in nature. You know, it's for many people, being in nature helps the heart to feel safe enough to open. Sometimes our heart opens when we hear the news on the radio or on television, maybe just seeing something, you know, just seeing uh, a homeless person or just something that just cracks your heart open. All the unexpected events in our lives can be a source of this uh, willingness to bear witness to suffering. So I'd like to read a story that speaks of this. It's a little bit long, but it's a good story. So here we go. This was written by a cab driver. 20 years ago, I drove a cab for a living. One night, I took a fare at 2.30 a.m. When I arrived to collect, the building was dark except for a single light in a ground floor window. So I walked to the door and knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail, elderly voice. I could hear something being dragged across the floor. After a long pause, the door opened. A small woman in her 80s stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it, like somebody out of a 1940s movie. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she said. I took the suitcase to the cab, then returned to assist the woman. She took my arm, and we walked slowly toward the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. It's nothing, I told her. I just try to treat my passengers the way I would want my mother treated. When we got in the cab, she gave me an address, and then asked, Could you drive through downtown? Well, it's not the shortest way, I answered quickly. Oh, I don't mind, she said, I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to a hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued. The doctor says I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take, I asked. For the next two hours, we drove through the city. 
She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds. She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she had gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she'd ask me to slow in front of a particular building or corner and would sit staring into the darkness saying nothing. As the first hint of sun was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, Oh, I'm tired. Let's go now. We drove in silence to the address she had given me. Two orderlies came out to the cab as soon as we pulled up. I opened the trunk and took the small suitcase to the door. The woman was already seated in a wheelchair. How much do I owe you, she asked, reaching into her purse. Nothing, I said. You have to make a living, she answered. Oh, there are other passengers, I responded. Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held on to me tightly. Our hug ended with her remark, You gave an old woman a little moment of joy. After a slight pause, she added, Thank you. I squeezed her hand and then walked into the dim morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly lost in thought. For the rest of that day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver or one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I had refused to take the run or had honked once then driven away? On a quick review, I don't think that I have done anything more important in my life. We're conditioned to think that our lives revolve around great moments, but great moments often catch us unaware, beautifully wrapped in what others may consider a small one. So in some way, a very ordinary story, but in another way, a life-changing experience. So this awakening of the heart, we never know where it's going to happen. We never know. Could be anywhere, anytime, any doing anything. Sometimes it occurs very quietly, and as the fruit of years of practice, this uh, man, Soen Roshi, Zen master, before he died, he, he wrote this. He said, please extend tender care with a worshiping heart to all beings, beasts and birds, but not only to beasts, not only to birds, but to insects too, okay? Even to grass, to one blade of grass, even to dust, to one speck of dust. Sometimes I bow to the dust, Well, one time I was teaching a retreat here at Spirit Rock, and a woman was here with her husband. They were doing a long retreat together, and they'd had some difficulty in their marriage. They'd been married quite a long time, but something shifted for the woman one day when they were 
down in the dining room eating in silence, as you know so well by now. And she looked at her husband and she saw his hand on her on his cheek and he was drinking a cup of tea and he was just kind of sitting like this. And when she saw his hand on his cheek, for some reason it just, her heart flew open and she just started weeping with love for her husband and it sort of shifted something in their relationship. Sometimes our hearts open in a very beautiful yummy way, like Kabir, the poet Kabir. He said, when the day came, the day I had lived and died for, the day that is not in any calendar, clouds heavy with love showered me with wild abundance. Inside me, my being was drenched. Around me, even the desert grew green. Just that sense of opening to this presence of love. In whatever form the heart opens, we could say it is a journey of intimacy, bringing us into a close and caring relationship with life itself, becoming intimate with all aspects of this human journey, because compassion joins with life. It does not stand separate. The example I like to give is like if the left hand is cut, the right hand doesn't stand over here and say, oh, too bad for you. You know, you're, you're in this all by yourself. You, know, you think I'm going to help? Forget it. No, it's not like that. It immediately goes to help because it's an understanding. We're joined. We're joined. And it begins, as we have begun here on this retreat, with the radical act of mindful awareness of the present, of just what is here. This is what cranks the wheels of compassion, beginning to help the heart to open to the reality of, of what is here. When we think about it, to be present with our full attention How is that any different from love and compassion? When you love someone or something, you want to be fully present. You want to be completely there with your full attention. When we are listened to, when we feel heard and seen, that too can feel like love. With mindful attention, we are learning to listen to ourselves with compassion, to be present moment to moment with the kind of patience that's required, with tenderness, kindness, and clarity. This is what we are learning here, not to abandon ourselves, not to reject what is happening, not to avoid or distract ourselves from what is present, but to meet ourselves moment to moment to moment. The poet Rumi writes, we are pain and what cures pain. 
We are the sweet cold water as well as the jar that pours. We are the mirror as well as the face in the mirror. We are tasting this, the taste this minute of eternity. We are the pain and what cures pain. We have both inside of us. Compassion is that remembering of what helps, what cures, what can meet the pain. Doing this is healing and liberating. Compassion knows intimately that, as I said, we are in this together. One time many years ago, uh, as when I was doing practice at Insight Meditation in the winter in, in Massachusetts, long, dark nights there, cold, it was kind of dreary, a little bit hard to keep practicing, you know, it wasn't like here where you could go outside a lot, we were just kind of slugging it out indoors. Anyway, one, one, one day during the middle of a long retreat, a, a little package arrived from a friend who lived in the area, and he had made some homemade cookies. Ooh, very exciting. Cookies! <laughs> and, he, and he had written a, a, a little note, and all the note said was, All beings cheer you on. <laughs> and it was fabulous. It was such a lift to my practice to have that reminder of the truth of it. That somehow when we are practicing in a mysterious way that cannot be explained really, all beings are cheering us on. Everyone is helping us in some way. You feel it from each other. You feel it from you from each other. We are practicing with and for everyone. So I'd like to end with a uh, poem by Thich Nhat Hanh. He says, You are me and I am you. Isn't it obvious that we inter are? You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so that you will not have to suffer. I support you, you support me. I am in this world to offer you peace. You are in this world to bring me joy. So let's sit together for a minute.
May all beings cheer you on. So we have tonight about 45 minutes before the final sitting. Thank you for your attention. <clears throat>